Hello and welcome to the Game Developer Podcast. I'm your host, Game Developer EIC, Danielle Riendo, and I'm excited to welcome you to our latest episode, where we interviewed the folks at Black Salt Games, the developers of Dredge, which is a spooky fishing game released this year. We chatted about indie development, narrative design, community management, and wearing many hats on a small team, as well as creating really tight, satisfying gameplay loops and horror that works on multiple scales. We also ponder the question, are fishing games the next roguelikes? Um, so could I just have you all introduce yourselves and just what your, uh, I know you all had like 10 roles on the project, but whatever you're <laughs> uh, typically saying for uh, your role on the project. Yeah, sure. I'll uh, I'll start off. My name is Joel Mason, and I was the programmer and writer uh, on Dredge, and a little bit of community management as well. Although we all sort of do some of that. Um, I'm Alex Ritchie, and I am the uh, lead artist on Dredge. I did all of the 2D art, and then a lot of the technical art as well. And I'm Michael Bastian, also known as just Mikey, and I am the 3D artist and uh, animator on Dredge. Awesome. Well, thank you all again. I really appreciate it. Um, I have a lot of uh, fun questions, very uh, dorky design questions mostly, which is, you know, <laughs> sort of what I awesome. get excited about here. <laughs> and also thank you all again uh, for being here twice, because obviously you did an interview with uh, my colleague Chris earlier in the year uh, for the game. So uh, I'll try not to repeat anything. I mean, I, I, you know, I didn't see the transcript or anything. So if we get a repeat, just uh uh, pretend I didn't say it. Uh, just pretend it was a, a haunted fish, you know, <laughs> coming up. <laughs> uh, so actually, one of the first things I wanted to talk about uh, was, I guess I, I semi-hinted at it. I didn't really mean to, but just like with a team of four or three primary developers, and then I know Nadia is your your studio head, um, you obviously have to wear a lot of hats. Uh, and I guess I wanted to ask if you're all used to working on very small teams or if this was new for anyone and how you kind of balance those various roles among your team members. Uh, we're not really used to uh, juggling roles. Uh, yeah, we've talked about it before, but we all used to work together at a separate studio uh, for about eight years. Uh, and we sort of kept to our role, at least I kept my role as programmer uh, pretty closely. Um, but I think it's just a necessity in uh, working in a small indie team that there's just so many things that need to be done and uh, someone's, someone's got to do it. Uh, in terms of how we juggled it, I guess uh, I'm not. I'm not sure exactly how we did it. Uh, I think. I think we just we just managed to to communicate. What, what do you guys think? Uh, I think. I think between us, we all had. Um, we all have like uh, interests and roles in game dev that kind of like fill all of the gaps. Uh, maybe except with the exception of like audio. <laughs> um, <laughs> gotcha. So uh, I guess, and and I feel like we all had kind of an understanding of like what everybody could do and what their roles roles were. So it, it seemed to work out without with very little communication in the beginning, really. <laughs> yeah, I think out of everyone, I've probably done the most amount of jumping between different things. Uh, at our old company, for the better part of the first five years I was there, I was the only 3D artist. So I had to do a lot of oh, wow. figuring out all the kind of pipelines for trying to get things in and have to do all the animations and 3D modeling. Then end up doing a bunch of 2D stuff and then a little bit of project management towards the end as well. 
But yeah, I think like Joel mentioned, I think what made it easy for us to kind of deal with all the jumping backwards and forwards between the different things is the fact that we've been together, working together for quite a long time. So really, we already know kind of like how we kind of work and we've got a lot of processes in place. So it just fits in pretty well. Nice. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask who ended up kind of being more of a producer role here, uh, or, or if that was actually Nadia, who <laughs> completely did that. That's all Nadia. I <laughs> uh, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> She's the one that makes sure that we stay on track. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it in the bios on the site, like, oh, good with spreadsheets. And I was like, yep, all right, that makes sense. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> But don't uh, don't awesome. ask me to define what a producer does because I think it's still very very nebulous. It's just kind of yeah. everything that we don't do. <laughs> yeah, it is hard. It is hard to define. But without Nadia, like I would not. I would have missed so many deadlines. I would have just been like useless. <laughs> <laughs> I always I always love producers. I, I do a little production uh, on my on the side, so I'm always like, oh yes, producers are great. We we love producers, you know. <laughs> Uh, but of course, all all parts are very important. I, I was going to ask if you if you did not have a dedicated audio person, did you just sort of use an off the shelf solution for audio? Uh, no, so we we contracted a uh, gotcha. a, a classical composer um, from oh, wow. from Auckland uh, to uh, to do all of our all of our music and then some some additional uh, sound effects. Uh, so his name is David Mason, um, and then we we also had Michaela doing some some additional sound design. So yeah, we have a, a, a sixty nine original track soundtrack. Uh, thanks to those guys. Yeah, it's pretty great. That's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> so I do want to hear a little bit about what made you want to break off from a previous studio and work together on this project. Has Dredge been sort of with you in your minds for a very long time at this point? Or was there a desire to potentially work on a project together? Perhaps you like working together and, you know, it came to that first. So uh, Black Salt Games was originally uh, basically a uh, I think I think a business diversification strategy post COVID um, <laughs> with <Sure>. uh, <laughs> work for higher contracts. Uh, you know, uh, in, in a bit of a recession, uh, not always. Um, coming in so yeah that the strategy which was i mean this is all spearheaded by nadia right so it, it was her idea to to break off um and and she she chose uh us to to come along with her um and so we yeah we founded black salt games as for whether dredge has been with us for a long time uh, no not really i mean <laughs> i think i think we're coming up to the 3 year anniversary next month of the google doc oh, wow. being created um <laughs> <laughs> that has the like original design for it, which is still a very different design. Uh, but uh, it, it existed around the time we were thinking of, of forming the studio. And then about six months later, when we did form it and started prototyping, that was when Dredge... Uh, uh, sort of, sort of came into existence um, as a as a very small prototype, and uh, we went from there. Nice. Tell me a little bit more about this early prototype, about the sort of first version of Dredge and what it what it looked like a little bit. So it, it sat alongside a couple of other prototypes because you know we, we believe in in uh, you know testing a bunch of different ideas. You know you can't just build one prototype and say, "Yep, that's good. Let's make it." So we built a few. <laughs> 
Um, Dredge was the last prototype of the three that we had built. Um, we gave ourselves two weeks to build each one. Um, we we like pretty pretty tight, pretty pretty small deadlines. Uh, so yeah, we, we spent two weeks building it, um, and it was it, it was reasonably familiar looking. If you go to our to our Twitter and you scroll all the way down, you will find some. Uh, early early gifs and videos of that prototype um, nice. possibly on YouTube as well uh, but it, it had the uh, it had the, the cities of greater marrow and little marrow it had a little fishing boat it had fog that would come in it had a day night cycle uh, it had fish but it had no fishing mini game um, mm. It had a, a spatial inventory system, which uh, Dredge uh, has in spades, uh, but it has it has a few differences. Um, uh, there, there were no like equipment shops or anything. We just uh, we had a slightly different system for that. Um, but yeah, it's it's it still kind of communicated the main vibe and the atmosphere of Dredge, uh, and that was that was kind of what it needed to do, and it did it. Nice, yeah. I. I I heard another interview uh, that you all did uh, maybe a, a week ago or two about how a lot of the sort of general vibe and flavor of the game came actually from environment design first almost or, or sort of came from uh, imagining certain areas and, and what might go on there and then sort of, you know, fleshing things out from there, which I think is, is really cool and interesting. Was that kind of always part of the idea or did that just sort of happen organically? I think it was pretty organic how things kind of happened um, because I came onto the project after they'd pretty much done the first uh, Greater Marrow area, so pretty much made the prototype level pretty much closer to what it actually is now, and then halfway through the creation of the Gale Cliffs. And then from there, it was still kind of like, oh, how are we going to approach designing these sort of things? And then we just started developing a process that worked for what was working with Dredge and then it ended up just being let's focus on the environment and then figure out how to put things in a lot of it afterwards I think and it just seemed to just come together just naturally I feel. That's really cool uh, <laughs> that's just a really interesting idea of like here's the place now let's think about <laughs> what fills in to it a little bit um, and I know an early prototype had giant waves that people could kind of launch themselves <laughs> off of which is really fun and I sort of think about uh, <laughs> uh, what the game would be like with with that sort of weird with that sort of weirdness I suppose that was that was actually uh, sort of on, only fixed a few months before release <laughs> that wasn't a prototype it was in the full game <laughs> you can still jump off the waves if you can find a way to go fast enough <laughs> yeah oh yeah our, our waves used to be we used to we used to have a different shape that we made our waves with which was much more ramp like which really exacerbated the problem <laughs> that's Excellent. Uh, <laughs> I suppose I, this is a little bit of a, a random tangent, but just going off of that and, you know, obviously I'm playing a lot of Tears of the Kingdom and I know a lot of other folks are because it's, you know, it's obviously very popular. Just the way people manipulate physics in the game, I, I sort of wonder, are, are you ever sad that you that you kind of don't have that in anymore, that people would like go viral with their wave ramps or anything like that or that probably would break the game too much. Oh, they'd end up on an island and you would never be able to get off the island because we don't have one of those kind of reset your last position <laughs> sure. sort of buttons. Mm. And you could still wedge yourself onto some islands in some places if you'd like drive <laughs> hard enough or fast enough onto the beach. And it's just like, well, now you have to reload, but you kind of did that to yourself. And I'm sorry. <laughs> I sort of like that. It's like you've, you've made your bed. <laughs> now lie in it. <laughs> what did you think would happen? <laughs> 
it's really true. It's like, this is not Link. This is a boat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, very different. Um, I do want to actually talk as well a little bit about sort of the prototyping process and just... One of the things that's really struck me about the game is just how tight that core loop is of, you know, you're fishing, you sell the fish, you improve the boat, you go further, you see spookier things, you, you know, get very scared when tentacles come out of the water, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like a really, really tight kind of core loop. Was that something that you found relatively early on or was that something that just, again, kind of came out of uh, prototyping and playtesting? It came out of uh, our original goals for what we wanted to make as a studio. So before we even pitched the games to each other, we decided, you know, what kind of games do we want to make? Do we want to make driving games, sports games? Uh, Do we want to make shooters? Do we want to make RPGs, et cetera, et cetera? Um, And and what kind of elements do we like in the video games that we play? And, you know, we we sort of all uh, had our differences and our similarities. And one of those things that we all really liked was a tight upgrade loop with like progression systems. So we knew from from the start that everything that we wanted to talk about together would have those those elements. So so yeah, none of our prototypes didn't have a tight upgrade loop basically. <laughs> um, but but also uh, you know it, it comes down to like like wanting to create a an experience that kind of feeds on itself, I guess, um, and drives you through the game. Yeah. It seems like that was clearly incredibly important <laughs> to the team and, and to uh, the entire design here. It's also one of those things that, uh, do you ever design for, okay, you want your players to be thinking about the game when they're not playing it? Like, oh, okay, I'm going to go wash the dishes. And, you know, they're really thinking about, like, oh, I wonder what's across that, you know, what's on that island, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's hard to know because because it's really hard for us to think like players, I guess, because we're always thinking about the game anyway, because it's, (laughs) you know, it's our life, basically. Um, But to hear that some players do do that, they think about it when they turn the console off and they think about it as they're falling asleep is is an amazing like compliment to hear. Um, It's enough for us to just hear that players, you know, want to investigate something over there or, oh no, there's something sparkly over there. That's a, that's a cool thing. But yeah, to hear that players do that when the game is turned off is great. Yeah. I love that players have found that experience, but it's, it was really hard to judge while making the game if that was actually going to happen because we know everything. So like, there's no mystery, (laughs) which is really hard. And and we wanted to create mystery in the game. So um, we sort of only got that validation after playtesting or releasing the game. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the night before the game comes out, do you have any sense at all? Like, oh my God, you know, it's obviously been incredibly well-received, um, you know, really, really, really good scores and really good hype and good buzz and so on and so forth. But, you know, was that the case, you know, the night before it comes out, were you kind of all biting your nails a little bit? Like, I, I hope people like this. <laughs> uh, we had a whole bunch of like mock reviews and stuff done sure. like well beforehand. Uh, so I think how many more, how many months up do you think we may have had some of those initial mock reviews? Well, done well we had, we had, we had like a mock reviews done a few months prior to launch, but the, yeah. the review embargo for the game was I think a week before launch. So we had gotcha. actual yeah. reviews a week before yeah. launch and it was, it was that night, you know, the, night of review right, embargo. That, that, was the the that was the night that I was freaking out about because then you got your mock <laughs> sure. reviews and then you're like, okay, that's what they said, but they could just well be lying to our faces. 
And then we get the embargo drop thing, and then they pretty much lined up really well with what the initial mock reviews oh, were. Nice. So when we had that, then we're like, okay, cool. At least the reviewers kind of like it, but what about the actual players? But we were like, well, at least the review scores aren't looking too bad so far. So there wasn't too much stress on the actual, I think, day of release. The day of release, I think, was more about like, um, but what's actually going to break in the game? What is that kind of mm. typical player going to run into and break, I guess? And I think that's what Joel was maybe having a little bit more nerves around. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. What what waves are they going to go flying off of and get it stuck on an island? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so it was interesting to hear about that. Uh, you know, of course, night one jitters. And yeah, of course, not the, not the night before release, but the night before yeah, uh, embargoes come up. I also really wanted to hear a little bit about uh, how you found that right flow between that really, really tight core loop and then also having side quests and having, you know, the option for players to go off and kind of do other things and explore a little bit more on their own, as opposed to, you know, having a very, very linear progression that sometimes comes along with those types of loops. Not always, certainly, but sometimes does. I guess right from the start, we said that players should be able to do pretty much anything in pretty much any order. Uh, I, I think at the time we, we sort of looked at Breath of the Wild and, uh, you know, with its, with its four divine beasts that you can do in any order. And we sort of wanted to treat the zones like that. Uh, so, so yeah, you, you, we guide players to, you know, Gale Cliffs first and then Stellar Basin next. But you can, you can go to the final zone first if you want. You're not going to have a great time <laughs> doing it. Yeah. Might get eaten a little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Just slightly. <laughs> uh, so speaking of uh, sort of the the creature design, not that you necessarily get eaten, obviously, but, you know, figuratively, <laughs> so to speak. Uh I just wanted to hear a little bit about sort of the creature design and the, your thoughts on just sort of how you introduce players to, you know, the, the sort of um, the, the wonderful horror thing of, oh, things are a little weird at first. <laughs> you know, something happens, obviously, where you crash, and then things are a little weird, and then things get, you know, progressively as the panic, you know, as the panic mechanic. That's a fun phrase to say, isn't it? Panic <laughs> mechanic. Um, <laughs> but as that sort of comes into play, uh, you know, what, what the pacing was in terms of how players experience the game and how much weirder things get and how much more eldritch horror things get, basically, as you go along. Yeah, so when you start off the uh, game, we only, we start drip feeding in the different kind of kind of panic experiences a player might come across. And you're also pretty much always in that starting sort of Lagoon Bay area as it is. And then there's nothing really that can kind of catch you or kill you there. But it's just lots of things that just start feeling a little bit more unsettling. And as you progress with the story and as you start going outside of that sort of safe little Haven Bay area, that's when we slowly start introducing more and more kind of, of the more aggressive sort of supernatural sort of things. And then as you collect more relics and stuff within the story, then that changes up the world phases. So as you progress through the game, things get more and more like it, more intense, I guess, but it's always kind of like goes along with how you're progressing through the game as well. Yeah. So we have this, this hidden kind of world phase, uh, world state uh, condition that you know it, it tries to keep track of how far through the game the player is because obviously as i said before you can do any zone in any order um so we can't just trigger off oh they've been to gale cliffs therefore 
do do this um you know start these events happening so so we track roughly how far through uh the main objectives you are and we we unleash various terrors onto the ocean uh, as you progress <laughs> that meter but the, the player doesn't know that but i think they expect it do you have a favorite um reaction like a favorite uh reaction of a player that you've seen on youtube or anything like that are there are there especially good ones that you've you've seen <laughs> i don't know about any specific ones but certainly the uh th- there is one creature in there that elicits some very very like, consistently good reactions which is <laughs> which is a creature in the first zone uh which kind of kind of plays a trick on people i won't spoil it in case anybody sure. hasn't played uh but but yeah, I think I, I think I've even seen some reaction compilations um, of, of streamers <laughs> screaming at, at that particular thing. You know, it wasn't it wasn't actually something we intended to make like a a scream worthy thing. It was just uh, it was just sort of an interesting idea that we had that turned out to work work pretty well. Yeah, I think that first day um, when the game got released and then it was everything was like available up on Twitter or Twitch and everything as well. And I just spent pretty much that entire launch day just watching all the Twitch clips <laughs> and everything as well, just laughing yeah. my head off, especially when you think you've got that one person who thinks they've outsmarted things and they turn around the corner and then they just get attacked by something else and then they just jump and scream and then they just start laughing afterwards as well. Oh, I just <laughs> love watching those. It was great. <laughs> That sounds very gratifying. <laughs> uh, like, I got him, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. You know, horror is not easy. Horror and comedy are both ridiculously hard to get right, right? Like, the tone has to be a certain way. You you know, things have to kind of work, and uh, the timing has to be right. So that must be just very gratifying <laughs> to see to see it kind of work on folks. <laughs> yeah. And uh, speaking of sort of the narrative uh, design aspect, so I know, um, obviously, as you had said in that previous interview, a lot of it came from kind of thinking about, all right, what happens in this part of the world? What happens in this part of the world? Uh, but I guess I wanted to ask if you had a general sense of the story at the beginning or if or if it really was kind of like, okay, prototype first, gameplay first, then we'll work the story in. And, and what that, pro- just, I guess I suppose I'm asking what that process looked like. What was that sort of give and take uh, between mechanics and sort of narrative design? So the overarching story um did exist uh in some form in that very very initial uh google design document that is three years old um (laughs) in that you were you know sort of discovering uh sort of eldritch relics and uh helping a person uh, do a thing that is maybe not the best thing for them to be doing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But then all of the, the wrapping around that, um, you know, sort of the, the character motivations, that that sort of changed over time. That that did not exist in the original pitch, uh, but it's something that we, that we fleshed out over the first year of development and went through a couple of uh, iterations in that, in that year. Um, but, but I think our approach to telling the story which is very sparse and um, held back uh, helped us with those rewrites because there wasn't a whole lot of stuff for us to change uh, <laughs> sure. we just it, it was subtle wording differences uh, and then yeah maybe maybe a character got rewritten or two but but largely uh, because we were so restrained in our original storytelling it was it was not a big deal yeah it um it felt like to me that it was kind of um, 
it was it was like it was pretty organic and it evolved a lot and we kind of approached creating the story in in almost like a similar way as a player like plays the game like when we started making the game it was all about we had we had the the rough basis of it with like as Joel said you're going to be collecting things and um for someone and we don't know what their intentions are and that was kind of like all we had solidified and there was like there was like nothing else really around it so we were making a game and it was sort of gameplay first at that point um but then as we were fleshing out this world and making the environments that people interacted with and adding characters um your mind just naturally start, sort of like starts wondering and making um making stories for them and like theory crafting basically as you're making your own world <laughs> And then you get to discuss with the, we get to discuss amongst ourselves, like, oh, what if this or what if that? And it was kind of like exciting. And it was like, you know, not having everything set in stone, let us be more uh, like excited about our own project as we, as we made it. And then uh, we got to kind of solidify the story as we went. And as we get to like describe, maybe the story goes this way to each other. We get to see, you know, we have our own reactions of, wow, that's, that's cool. You know, that's like unique. I would love to see that happen. Um, so maybe that's a little bit different, but it was quite cool. Yeah, that's really awesome. That I I just got excited uh, with you, <laughs> sort of for the process there, because I can imagine that there are times in development where you know you're in the the, the swamp <laughs> kind of aspect of like okay, you know, the drudgery of just making everything work. And it sounds like having that aspect of the story was a, a way of keeping things fresh and exciting, and you know, thinking about this world that you're all kind of creating together, uh, which. That sounds pretty rad. <laughs> yeah, it helped that we were, um, you know, sort of moving between uh, the the game's zones uh, developmentally, like together. Oh, yeah. um, so, you know, we would all be working on zone two and then we'd finish that one and then we'd all be working on zone three. Um, you know, it, it, we'd be slightly staggered where, you know, um, maybe Alex or, or Mikey were working on the environments first and while I was writing the narrative um, for it. Uh, but but yeah, largely we were we were sort of moving to a fresh area uh, pretty regularly, which which helped. Yeah, it's kind of cool. It's almost you're on the boat a little bit in a sense, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And uh, did you use yarn spinner? I I wanted to say I I read that somewhere, and I should probably confirm with you. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Awesome. Yeah, we used awesome. yarn spinner. I've used it for a few uh, other small projects before, but this was sort of my first. Uh, large uh, yarn spinner project and it was it was invaluable it was very good nice yeah we actually had uh, uh john from yarn spinner on the podcast previously so uh very very familiar with uh that particular tool uh, a lot of fun to work with uh cool so I do also want to ask a little bit about uh, your sort of DLC roadmap, which I think was just uh, announced uh, a couple of weeks ago, which is having a couple of sort of free updates. I know there's sort of a map pinning system and potentially a photo uh, system. Just how you came, if you can talk at all about sort of coming up with, okay, here's some good ways of keeping the game fresh for a while while we do, you know, perhaps a more robust paid uh, offering and things like that. How, if, how you kind of came to the decision uh, to do things that way? Um, well, it was basically basically what you said. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> uh, I mean, we uh, th there are things in our roadmap that we thought that we sort of predicted um, ahead of release. And we thought, yeah, you know, if people if people like the game, then these are some things that we can offer. Um, and it was things like uh, map markers and, and photo mode. Um, and 
and then people really, really liked the game. Uh, so then we thought, well, okay, let's um, let's flesh some of these things out more. Um, and so, so yeah, as you mentioned, we had we had our map markers update, which just came out um, a few weeks ago. And then uh, in a few weeks is is the 1.2 update, which is photo mode. But we've also added to that a whole bunch of uh, wildlife encounters. You know, things more things to take pictures of. Uh, so there are some there are some orcas. Uh, that'll sail alongside your boat and uh, uh, something like maybe eight other uh, new events that will that will happen most of them are are good things and and a few of them are are less good things Um, (laughs) yeah uh, but but yeah so we yeah we wanted to and alongside all of those updates are a number of you know quality of life uh, fixes and tweaks and bug fixes etc etc you know we we uh, some of those things come directly from the community saying, hey, we should have uh, the option to uh, do this setting. Or, um, you know, I, I think the I think the balance of this, the spawn rate of this thing is off. So, you know, we, we tweak some of those things. Uh, but yeah, the uh, those updates give us time to, to design and then work on a, a much larger um, piece of content, which is the paid DLC, which is currently slated for the end of the year, uh, which, yeah, we are we are in the process of uh, designing uh, and, and working on. And, you know, w- again, we've taken a lot of the community's feedback uh, into account here and, and are trying to uh, direct that DLC um, in a direction that we hope the community will be happy with. You mentioned that everybody kind of does a little bit of community management, especially on a on a very small team uh, like this. Uh, is that is that new for you folks, or have you always kind of done a little bit of okay, well, I'll do some social media, or I'll you know look at some feedback, or is this kind of like okay, this was new for our uh, for Dredge in our new studio? Yeah, we've we've never done any of that stuff because okay. because as, as a as a previously work for hire studio, uh, we would we would essentially deliver a product to a client and they would do all of the the marketing and the releasing yeah. and the community stuff. So all of that is new. None of us had used Twitter before, um, you know, we were working on this game. Uh, I still don't understand how it all works and stuff as well. I just, <laughs> I just hit the retweet thingy and then like the, the heart likey thingy and then just go. when someone else posted, I haven't posted, like, I don't think I've ever done my own, like, here's a post that I've just done. It's just like, I'll just, basically I just copy whatever Joel does, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It's probably best. <laughs> it's it's yeah. just a, it's basically just a retweet bot for our main yeah. account. That that's exactly what I have. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> I think you're winning at Twitter if you're doing it that way, to be honest. <laughs> uh, but yeah, oh. certainly like like um, having a community to manage is, is such a... Uh, it's a big thing. Um, yeah. And I definitely agree that community management is a full-time job. Uh, just unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. we, we don't have the full-time resource uh, in this team to do it. Um, but thankfully, our, our publisher helps us out with, with some of that stuff as well. Um, but yeah, we have we have I don't know like four, three or four thousand people in the in the Discord, and oh, then wow. like nine thousand people on the subreddit, uh, which Ooh. is is growing pretty quick. Uh, and there's there's awesome stuff being posted. Like there's there's cool fan art every day, which I absolutely love to see. And then like story speculation because because it's so mysterious and vague. You know, people yeah. will will come in every day and be like, I just finished it and I I have some questions. And then people will jump <laughs> in and and help out, which is cool. Uh, that's 
That's really cool. Yeah. I was going to ask if any of the fan art, I, I, <laughs> this is a very random question, but I, I did recall in a previous interview, you had said uh, for a Valentine's Day post, you had uh, done like a fake Tinder profile for uh, <laughs> for the fishmonger. And I guess I, I guess I just have to ask if, if, uh, you know, if you do have fans, we're kind of like, why don't you put in a dating sim or, you know, that oh, type of thing? Yeah, the dredge dating universe sort of thing, the dating sim thing. There's been requests for it and everything. Yeah, uh, And not just fan requests as well, yeah. right, guys? <laughs> well, I, just, oh. I want to romance the fishmonger. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so lonely. You know, he's, he's a lonely guy, you know, it's understandable. No, that, that's that's off-brand. There is no love in this world. <laughs> <laughs> I think we briefly had a chat when we were talking about DLC stuff, I think, the other day about, like, oh, you could just play matchmaker in this world now, trying to <laughs> and then just bring people to other people. <laughs> I mean, that's a beautiful idea. That's a- <laughs> oh, what if you lose one on the way? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no! <laughs> Oh no, with a panic effect. Somebody jumps, you know, they jump off the boat. They're just like, I can't handle it anymore. Goodbye. You know, yeah. so. <laughs> oh, that's a lot of fun. <laughs> awesome. Well, I just wanted to ask uh, my, my sort of last question is really just sort of a general, uh, it, it does sound like this has been a really fascinating and an interesting project. If just there are any other lessons you wanted to sort of put out there for very, very small teams, you know, for for a team of five or fewer people, um, if, you know, on a pretty robust uh, game, this is what a, a six, seven hour game for a, a, a playthrough typically, just if there are any lessons you, you'd want to put out there to other folks in a, a somewhat similar space. I, I guess my my piece of advice, um, which I always try to I, I try to follow, um, which is that like <laughs> you you won't, you won't be able to do everything, um, and being pragmatic and knowing uh, when to make decisions on on what content you actually can fit is gonna is gonna hold you in good stead. You know, getting good at making decisions is uh, I think really important. Uh, it, it comes with experience um, sure. and it comes with uh, being able to estimate tasks, which is a, a just such a huge part in, in software development as a whole. Um, and, and yeah, just, uh, just prioritizing uh, and knowing, knowing really which features are important. Yeah. Um, I guess I've, I've got a couple as well, but um, one as, as an artist, there's a, uh, there's like a desire to always you 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 can kind of become a bit of a perfectionist and like you've got to be pretty pragmatic if you want to release a game so like if you know to do if you want to do like your best work but your for each character portrait but you know that each one takes like a week or two weeks um, maybe you have to change your style or you know you have to adapt to be able to fit to actually get the thing done um, it doesn't mean that you have to make subpar <laughs> work. You just you just have to know <laughs> when to stop when when something is enough and when to move on. You know, in most cases, like overwhelmingly most cases, the purpose of a game is to get released and get into players' hands. Um, and and yeah, you've just got to make those decisions that see the game get released. Yeah. And then so my one on the end of that is pretty much get it in front of those people that are going to be playing your game as quickly as possible, as soon as possible. Mm. Get all that playtesting in so you can figure out like, okay, let's not continue working on this idea because it's not really Mm. going to take the player anywhere forwards. 
let's try and get them to be doing this. And then that helps with the decision-making. If you can actually validate things that you actually want to be testing and checking out as quickly as possible. So you can essentially just fail faster and then get onto making the things that actually work really well for you. Yeah. Playtesting is a huge, huge thing for us. It's no surprise perhaps that there's like a solid full screen page of playtesting credits in, in our game. Uh, we, we playtested, uh, from like week two of development onwards when the scene was mostly just gray boxes and there was like a boat floating around. Um, I don't think there were any waves or anything. It's like <laughs> just testing controls. Yeah. I don't think there was anything that we did that was like right first time and doing playtesting and and figuring out, okay, what's wrong? How do we fix it? And then like repeat playtesting to, to verify that you've that you fixed it and made it better. It's so, so important. I was going to say, I, I almost I almost wanted to guess that you had done a lot of playtesting <laughs> just from, again, that sort of really core uh, gameplay loop and just being like, this this must have taken a lot of trial and error <laughs> to just get the feel uh, correct. There. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's getting other people, not yourself, because as developers yeah. and stuff, you can kind of just tunnel vision and then believing in your own sort of like, you just validate your own reasons for wanting something to work inside your head and then you put it in front of someone else and they're like but that doesn't feel like that to me and then so i know so many people through all of the kind of student projects that i've kind of seen and helped out with and just seeing all the game jam stuff and it's like you haven't really tested this yet you've just tried to finish up what you thought was going to be the final product to make it look good but nothing else kind of works so yeah getting things out and testing things out in front of people that are likely going to be able to say this feels weird and I don't like it. That's what you really want. You want those people testing your game. Yeah, I, I found in my experience that most ideas that sound fun in your head generally are not once you code <laughs> yeah. them up and art them up. Uh, and um, a lot of things uh, need some love and, and some things need a lot of love uh, to get working. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And that is uh, a really good point about, you know, especially I, I imagine on a... In, on a very small team, if there are folks who are, you know, relatively early, not not to say you folks are, but some folks who are relatively early in their careers or made a lot of game jam games or, you know, did student dev and they're like, but I play tested. And it's like, no, that's not, <laughs> not enough. <laughs> so that makes a lot of sense uh, to me. Well, thank you all so much uh, for your time, for your energy, for your amazing responses. Really appreciate it. Uh, it sounds like we're, you're on the roadmap uh, for update number two that's happening relatively soon. And then uh, folks can look forward to more dredge uh, towards the end of the year, sounds like. That's right. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Game Developer Podcast. Our show is produced by Jordan Mallory. I have one quick shout out before I let you go. The GDC showcase is coming up at the end of June and yours truly, as well as most of the game developer staff are involved in hosting and producing content for the show. Please check out gdconf, that's G-D-C-O-N-F dot com slash showcase for all the details. And of course, gamedeveloper.com for updates and daily content. 